for the rest of us, how are we doing? Amen. Let's start, let's start by talking a little bit about childbirth, right? So, so that, that's a great, great launch to our, this morning's sermon. Um, don't worry, we won't get too in-depth with childbirth, but I want to know about the experience when you, when you first, you know, what's the craziest experience that you can think of in terms of a child being born? You know what I mean? There's always movies about this, right, where it's like, okay, here we are, we're on, a, we're on, on an airplane, and wait a second, I'm going in labor even though this is super early and now, what are we going to do? We got to have this baby on the airplane, right? Or it's like, hey, even though people are chasing us and we're about to die, there's like a movie always where there's a moment where people are being chased and they're about to die. It's like, wait a minute, we're about to have a baby. And now people are shooting at us and we're about to have the baby at the same time, right? There's always those kind of moments. So what, what crazy moment that um, in your life can you kind of go back to and say, man, this was a crazy moment. Most of our, 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 our you know, birth moments, well, most of my wife's birth moments, I guess I didn't really have a part in that, but most most of my wife's birth moments were really kind of tame, if you will. I mean, we had that we had the incident that I shared with my church family about when the air conditioning went out, and I was going all around town to make sure that when the baby came home, that they actually had air in crazy heat, Mississippi heat, in in the middle of August type of Mississippi heat, and so that's our crazy story. But but I'm sure nobody has a crazy story like, yeah, there was this one time where where we were we were all around about to experience this birth, and in the middle of this birth, you know, somebody broke out and started speaking in a foreign language that they never spoke in before, and there was like tongues of fire that was like resting on these people, and, and all sorts of stuff started happening. Some people thought that they were drunk, and other people, you know, started shouting and praising God, and, and, and then they started telling people about God and all their different languages, and I'm sure none of us have that experience in terms of birth, but, but that is the experience regarding the birth of the church. That's how the Christian church comes to fruition, is the arrival of the Spirit is kind of this inaugurating moment where it's, 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 a, it's a mark that this is real, and this is about to happen. And we want to talk a little bit about that. And, and, and not, just, not just the birth of the early church, but we want to talk a little bit about what does the birth of the early church, and more importantly, the arrival of the Spirit that ignites the birth of the early church. What does that mean for us as a church? Not just City Light Church, but I'm talking about what does it mean for us as a contemporary universal church? You know, when we look at it, and, and in verse 1 it says, the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. It's real easy to, to, to miss that this is not picking up a new story, but it's continuing the same story from chapter 1. Chapter 1, Jesus departs from earth. He leaves directions, simple instruction before he leaves, and those simple instructions are stay in Jerusalem and wait on the promise of God. Stay in Jerusalem and wait on the promise of God, the third person of the Trinity, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we have the benefit of having the full account. And so while the disciples don't know when the Spirit was coming, we know exactly when he arrived. And that was the day of Pentecost, of course. And so the question, the first question that's worth asking, asking this morning is, how long did they actually have to wait? How long was the period between Jesus' departure and the Spirit's arrival? Jesus, after his resurrection, um, ascended into the heavens after 40 days of being here post-resurrection. Pentecost, which means 50th, by the way, is it takes place 50 days after Passover. So the time between Jesus' departure and the arrival of the Spirit was roughly 10 days, about a week and a half. 
Here's a better question worth asking. What were they doing while they were waiting? What did Jesus' followers do while they waited in Jerusalem in anticipation for the promise of God to arrive? Acts chapter 1, verse 12 and 14 gives us the answer. It says in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What were they doing while they were waiting? They were devoting themselves to prayer, and they were devoting themselves to prayer and unity because it says that not only were they praying, but they were praying under one accord or with one accord, with one mind, with one purpose, with one focus. So it was prayer and unity, unified prayer, unified collective front, praying 10 days in anticipation or waiting for the arrival of this promise. They weren't simply obeying God, they were, they, were, they were obeying God together. God gave them instructions to follow and they were prayerfully obeying him together and seeking his face and pleading with him to move as he promised he would do. See, prayer is a posture that we take when we are truly bought into what God is saying to us. God told them to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit arrived, and, and they believed those words, which is why we find them spending the next 10 days obeying, waiting, and praying for that movement. Prayer is the posture that we take when we are truly bought into what God is saying to us. But unity is the posture that one takes um, when, when there is a collective group of people who are all bought into what God is saying to us. All that were gathered and on the same page, all, all, rather all of them were gathered and on the same page because they were collectively committed to what God had spoken to them. So the reality is not, or the reality is rather when we are not obeying, and when we are not praying, we are not believing God's promises to us. It's in those moments that we are operating in doubt. Bible says keep on praying at all times. Staying sharp in the spirit. Do we keep on praying? The answer is why. The Bible says cast your cares on the Lord. Your burdens and your anxieties, your fears and your worries, for he cares for you. Do we cast our cares and our anxieties and our fears on the Lord in prayer? Answers why. The Bible says that the fervent and effectual prayers of righteous men, righteous people, is powerful in its working and avails much. It accomplishes great things. Do we offer Fervent, effectual, frequent prayer. The Bible says that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses in our prayers. When we pray and we don't know how to pray, that the Spirit prays for us by offering prayers with, with groanings that cannot be uttered and cannot be made audible. In other words, when you say, well, I, I'm just so tired, and I, I just, I'm just so fed up, or I'm just so mentally exhausted, I'm so emotionally exhausted, 
to the point where I can't pray. The Bible says, the Bible says even when you're in that, in that phase where you feel like you're too weak to pray, you don't even know how you should pray. The Spirit prays for you. Do you pray in light of those promises? See, here's the question, right? It's a tough question for us to answer. Do we believe any of that? And I know, I know everyone in the room more than likely saying, yes, I believe it. I believe it. Then the, second, then the second question may be even more uncomfortable, which is if we believe it, why aren't we praying? If we believe that, that, that we should keep on, that if we keep on praying, God is listening. If we believe that we should cast our cares and our worries and our fears and our anxieties on God because he cares. And if we believe that the fervent and effectual prayer of righteous people avails much and accomplishes much and is powerful and is working. And if we believe that the spirit will even help us when we're too weak to pray and don't know how to pray, then why aren't we praying? See, when, when, when Jesus tells the apostles, stay in Jerusalem. And, when, and, and, and if you stay in Jerusalem, I'm not even giving you a date when the Spirit is coming, but stay. Stay, and he's coming. And they stay, and they pray. Do you know why? Because they believed. They believed him when he said that he was coming. And so what you and I have to wrestle with, and this is not just you, this is me wrestling in my own life. What we have to wrestle with is do we believe God when God is speaking to us? This is what it means to wait well. Wait well resting in God's promises. Wait well trusting in God's promises. Wait well in trusting in what God has said concerning his people. Why aren't we reading our Bible and looking at Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 where the disciples tell Jesus, teach us how to pray, and then he teaches them how to pray? Why aren't we looking at that if we believe the God that has spoken these things? We need to know how to pray so that we can pray to the God who has offered all these promises to us. Why do we seek to go into everything in life if we believe him why do we seek to go into everything in life without him? The words that Jesus spoke that day concerning the promise of the Spirit was as real to the disciples as the one that you're hearing under my voice now. And that's why they did not leave that place. That's why they stayed. And that's why they prayed and sought the face of God. But again, we also see that the reality was that they didn't have to wait alone. They waited together, all with unity of mind and unity of purpose, seeking the face of God in the light of the coming arrival of the Spirit. See, oftentimes what unity really boils down to is a group of people collectively convinced of and believing in what God has said. See, their unity is rooted in God's promise first and then, and then, and then one another second. It, it's, it, and, and, and in so doing, oftentimes what happens in the case of disunity, what is absent is not simply a bond or, or simply or merely love for one another, but what is missing is a consensus of faith in the promises of God. What is often brought to the surface in division is a lack of trust and what thus says the Lord. And thus you have all these other lesser and separate missions and lesser and separate visions that become more important. 
The stubborn commitment to try and go at this thing called life alone is seen in our prayerlessness individually, but in our division collectively. Do you understand that? So the early church gives us a model from the beginning worthy of following. If we truly believe God for ourselves, and if we truly believe God over ourselves and, and over the opinions of others, then we must come together to learn what God has said in his word, and we must encourage one another to stay together prayerfully obeying that which he has said. But then there's other things, obviously, to talk about. There's chapter 2, and there's the Spirit's arrival. So they pray and he shows up as promised by Jesus Christ. The father would send the promise and with the promise would come power. And so there's many signs that we should, that we should look at and symbols that we should look at as we, as we work through this text together. In verse 1 it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This day for many was a fulfillment of promises made ages before. The Old Testament prophet Joel prophesied about this day when he said it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in that day I will pour out my spirit. Basically speaking to the fact that every single person that is called by God, every single person that names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord will receive this outpouring of his spirit. Doesn't matter the class, doesn't matter the gender, every single person shall receive this outpouring of his spirit. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, nearly six centuries before this particular day, also prophesies about this coming day. And he says in chapter 36 that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So he says this spirit that's coming, this, this spirit that's coming will, will soften our hearts to receive the, to receive the promises and the, and the instruction of God. The spirit that is coming will also teach us how to walk this out, not from an external perspective, but literally from an internal perspective. He will reside on the inside of us to teach us how to walk it out. But then there are Old Testament shadows, not just prophecies, but shadows that we see. For example, when you think about the ideal of the presence of God, According to Luke's testimony here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they're all gathered in one place, eagerly and earnestly seeking the face of God. When all of a sudden, the sound of a violent wind rushes through the house. And then tongues that appeared as fire are distributed to each person and rest upon each person. There's some, there's some translations that says cloven tongue, but, that, but that's actually missing the point. It's actually not simply a type of tongue, but it's, it's, it's the fact that fire or something as a fire that appears like fire is resting and being distributed on each person that's gathered praying in anticipation of the arrival of the Spirit. 
This is not the only time we've seen wind and fire in the scriptures. Ezekiel, in the first chapter of his book, describes the arrival of the glory of the Lord in the terms of strong wind and fire. God speaks to Job out of the strong winds of a whirlwind. Moses first encounters the presence of God from the confines of a burning bush that's burning continually and yet not being exhausted and yet not being destroyed because the energy is outside the bush. It doesn't need the bush to burn. But then also when Moses is first given the law of God on Mount Sinai, we read this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast of violent sound so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. When Solomon first brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was where the tangible presence of God was known to dwell into the temple, we again see these themes of fire and clouds and storms. So this fire and wind is oftentimes used to describe the presence of God manifesting itself in a place or in an object. But here what's interesting about what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the fire isn't inhabiting a place or an object. The fire instead is inhabiting a people. And not just one person. That's why the, that's why the ideal of tongues being distributed on each of them is so important. It's not just this one select person amongst the group, but it's everyone that was gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this distributed fire has been poured out upon them. What significance should we take from this? It, we should take that God is meeting us not in a place any longer, but in a people. The church is where God is. But we make the fatal mistake of thinking that the church is a building. It is not a building. It is a collection of people. It is a collective of people. It is an assembly, the Greek, or the Greek word being ecclesia. And so, and so instead of putting all, our, all of our energy inside of a building or into a building to ensure it is sacred, the people of God should receive that effort and that energy to ensure that we walk holy. Because we are the residing place for God's presence. It's for this reason that you hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to flee sexual immorality. He says, why, and you say, well, why should I do that? It says, every sin, other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he says this, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that God dwells now in you? Therefore, don't join God with anything unlike God. Your body is a place where the Spirit dwells. Therefore, walk holy, Paul urges us. But Acts chapter 2 is also the reason why we hear in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God so it's not just we or me the individual that's the temple of God 
but we collectively also are considered the temple of God, the place where God dwells. Therefore, sanctify ourselves, not just individually, but sanctify ourselves corporately. Don't allow ourselves to be, to be tightly tied to civilian or worldly affairs and, and keep the advancement of the mission of God the main thing and, and fight for unity and pursue God and guard who, who speaks for you on, and on your behalf by weeding out false teachers and false teaching. Why? Because we are the place that God dwells. We are now his dwelling place and the primary means by which people meet God. The church is. The arrival of the Spirit points to the reality that God has designated his church as the primary vehicle by which people will meet him. And it is because the church has not only been given the Spirit of God, but it is because the church has been given the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hear me, I'm not saying the building is. I'm saying the people are. Folks, you can have a building and still not have a church. But you can have a church and not have a building. Another sign that we see of of relevance and importance is the actual day itself, this this day that, that we call Pentecost or or 50th. We, we see a lot of things happening in the midst of this particular Pentecostal gathering or this, 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 this moment in time. In verse 4, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. First of all, let me say, didn't, didn't Miss Judy do a fantastic job reading those? I mean, I stumbled, I stumbled through those all the time, so, so she did a great job. But let me also say this. I just had to put that out there. Thank you, Miss Judy. But I had to put that out there. This is one of three homecoming feasts. And what I mean by that is this is this, this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a several times a year where people from all over the world who are of Judaic uh, or who are of Jewish heritage, but also proselytes, that, that, that means people that don't have Jewish heritage but are converted practicing Jude, Judaizers, all right? So all over the world, there are three times during the year where they gather and they come into the, uh, come into the city of Jerusalem as a pilgrimage. And this is one of those particular times. It's called the Feast of the Harvest. That's, that's another, that was another term for Pentecost. And so hundreds of people, both native Jewish people, non-natives who had been converted to Judaism, were present from all over the ancient world on this day. In other words, on this particular day, you would have a massive collision of culture. 
people who migrated from Israel possibly decades or even centuries ago due to their family, uh, due to their family migration, and, 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 and people who carried uh, religious ties but, but were still foreigners, they all returned back to Jerusalem. And this is why we read in this text so many foreign people that are gathered. That's why you have that list of people. If you don't mind, show the, show the map, Darren, at this point of the, the places. This is, this is all the places that are, are basically represented in this one uh, space at this time. And look at that. You see, you see the north, the south, the east, the west, all covered. You see, you see modern-day Turkey and modern-day Iraq, Iran, Asia, North Africa locations like Egypt and Libya. Italy, obviously, with Rome. They were all represented all in this one moment. And so that covered pretty much the ancient world during that time. That's why you hear Luke declare that on site, on site at Jerusalem were, were devout men from every nation. That's why he declares that. Thank you, Darren. So, of course, we can clearly see that one of the reasons this day is, this day was picked for the Spirit to fall because, was because this day was ready made to allow the early church to become a global church. From the very beginning, the church was multicultural. From the very beginning, the church was global. To further emphasize the point, we have this speaking in tongues. This is easily one of the most confusing portions of the text as it relates to modern-day Christianity and the way we view it. In terms of purpose, what is it there for? Well, one thing that we need to remove is the, the mystery surrounding this idea of speaking in tongues. In the Greek, the word tongues in verse 4 is the exact same word as languages in verses 6 and 8. So for whatever reason, English translation or English tradition translates verse 4 as tongues and it sticks out throughout most trans or stuck through most translations. But the emphasis is not on some unknown language. The emphasis is on foreign languages. And I'll show you why. What was taking place was a group of people now having been empowered by the Spirit carried the ability in the midst of nations gathering in one place to speak their languages. That's what happened. This ties in well with the fact that hundreds of thousands of people were gathered here from this, for this day from all over the world. And now they are hearing their language spoken freely by the natives that were gathered. Now, obviously, you have other places where, 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 where theologians on all sides contend as to whether or not tongues is known or unknown. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 are obviously places. But here, what we know is that this is a known language or languages that are being spoken for everyone gathered to be able to hear. It says the multitude came together in verse 6, and they said... They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The people even took notice based on the dialect and the appearance of the men and women that were Galileans. They said, how are they speaking our language? Because they noticed the dialect of the Galileans. They noticed the appearance of the Galileans. And yet they're speaking Egyptian they're speaking Libyan, 
They're speaking dialects and languages that, or they're speaking languages that don't jive with, with, with their original language. But it's not just simply, I mean, pick, picture it like this. Picture the scene. You're, you're at First Baptist Church of whatever city you want to be a part of, and they're having this big international festival with people all over the country. And, and all of a sudden, folks from the rough side of the tracks show up shouting and praising God and speaking in all of these foreign visitors' languages in order for them to clearly understand. Because you have to understand, Galilee was, was, was not considered high culture, wasn't considered sophisticated culture. So maybe you could argue and reason in a more sophisticated culture. Well, they probably have people that know multiple languages. But no, not here. That's, that's, that's what's so startling to them. How are the Galileans all speaking in, in languages that, that we know they should not know? But it's not just what they're speaking, it's... it's, it's or not just how they're speaking, it's what they're speaking, rather. Verse 11 says, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. This wasn't just speaking in a foreign language and making small talk in it. Como esta? No, no, no English. <laughs> this wasn't what this was, right? This wasn't what this was. This was, this was evangelism happening, supernatural evangelism, supernatural gospel proclamation. See, when I read this, I can imagine shouts in an African language, Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I can hear in an Asian language in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? You have to picture what's happening here, right? It's not small talk. It's declarations of the goodness of God that's being spoken in a language that belongs to me. How is this happening? And keep in mind that there is nothing ironic about the fact that the first act of a spirit-empowered people is proclamation. It's the first act. What do they do when they get power? Go and proclaim their, 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 their wealth and health. No, that's not what they do. The first thing they do is proclaim Jesus. The first thing they do is testify of the mighty works of God. They boldly and supernaturally declare the mighty works of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ with their first, as their first empowered act. Which brings out another very interesting point and final point, uh, the, the celebration of the harvest. See, one of the elements of Pentecost is the ideal of harvest. It is considered the festival or the feast of harvest. It is, it is a festival in which the, the, in which the people of God gather to celebrate God's, God's graciousness to them and providing them the first fruits of the season. And that's a very appropriate celebration for the arrival of the Spirit. 
since Paul calls the Spirit or calls us or tells us that we receive the first fruits of the Spirit. He tells us in, 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 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that we, ought, we always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. The apostle James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. So Pentecost represents this celebration of this natural harvest, this natural celebration of the first fruits of the season, but it is also a celebration of a spiritual harvest, right? This, this spiritual first fruits that God has brought forth through his local church by his spirit. The arrival of the spirit represents the first signs of God's harvest. Are you tracking that? Remember in Matthew, some of you may remember this. This is a very popular passage in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus, he goes through the cities and the villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, the Bible says that he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And maybe you recall Jesus' words that we talked about last week, that when the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 1, when the Spirit arrives, when the promise arrives, you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses. So it's not unique that the, that the arrival of the Spirit is connected to the Feast of the Harvest. See, the arrival of the Spirit was the first and most important answer to the prayers, send out laborers into the Lord's harvest. We are the laborers, Spirit and power to go into God's harvest and reap the harvest. It's on this day that we see 3,000 people added. Harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, then the Spirit comes, laborers are added, harvest comes at the feast of the harvest. See, the Spirit comes to empower you and to empower I and to empower the church to be harvest gatherers. He came to empower you to be harvest gatherers, to go to the broken and to bring the healing balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go to the dark places and to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he's in you. And when you're weak, that's why he's strengthening you. And when you're depressed, that's why he's encouraging you. And when you're downtrodden, that's why he's building you up. He's not doing all of that so you can say, well, I feel much better now. No, no, he's doing that so in order for you to feel much better to go into the harvest. And to help people meet God. 
There is no temple for them to meet God now. There's his people. And that's why he's in you. So that through you, the gospel of Jesus Christ might be proclaimed. Through you, people might hear about a Savior that lived the perfect life. Through you, people might hear of a Savior that knew no sin. And that through you, people might hear of a Savior that went to a cross and that paid the penalty, paid the penalty of death for us because we owe that penalty because we ourselves, even, uh, even though he knew no sin, we ourselves know only but sin. And that through you, people might hear about a, about a Savior that went into the grave but rose from the grave demonstrating that he had power and authority over everything within heaven and earth. And that those who repent, those that turn to him and trust him with their lives as both Lord and Savior shall be saved. That comes through us. That proclamation comes through you and comes through me. And so God is sending his laborers out, but never lose sight of the fact that one of those laborers is you. 